Welcome to Highland Park Christian Church. We are neck deep in studying the Sermon on the Mount, and so glad that you could be here today. Last week, we jumped into the passage where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, to the people long ago, you shall not murder, but I tell you, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. See, the Pharisees had, had uh, restricted what God meant and made it very small. And Jesus expanded that. And Jesus does the same thing in our text here today. He takes something the Pharisees had restricted and then to just something being done physically. And he says, no, 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 it's the heart that we are after. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 37. And as we do that, remember, Jesus is not saying, compare what Moses said with what I said. Jesus is really saying, compare what the teachers today, how they interpret Moses' law with how I interpret it, and listen to these commands. And oh my goodness, this text is pretty tough to hear, but boy, do we need it today. So if you would, read along with me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Here we go. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Jesus comes and takes what the Pharisees had restricted and he expands it to their thoughts. And then he gets down to divorce in which the Pharisees had expanded to almost mean anything and he restricts it. And then he goes to the subject of oaths. The Pharisees, again, restricted only certain promises, scouts honor kind of a thing. And he extends it to just yes or no. I want to walk through this text, and I want to do so backwards, beginning with that last section about oaths. It seems a little foreign to us, but they were swearing on oaths and all sorts of things in order to get out of stuff or to say that some things did not count. And so uh, there's three things that this text drives us towards in which we want to ask God for help with. And The first is to have pure words, to have honesty, to let our yes mean yes and no mean no, to be a truth teller. 
It means we don't tell little lies to advance our cause or agenda. Because if you lie about the little things, you lie about the big ones. And Jesus is after your heart to begin with. So the big ones and the little ones all matter to him. I heard about a baseball team uh, that was running a camp and they had advertised uh, to uh, the community that it was $5 a day for any kid to come to their summer baseball camp. Mom had showed up on a Monday and paid $25 to enroll her boy for all five days uh, every, every afternoon. But on Thursday, her boy was sick, so he wasn't able to make it. And then on Friday, he was okay and went back. And when she showed up on Friday to take him, the coach or the, the league director handed her a $5 bill. And she said, well, what, what's this for? And he said, your boy wasn't here yesterday. And she said, I, I know, but it's because he was sick and I wrote you a check for the whole week. And he said, well, the poster said $5 a day. He wasn't here yesterday. Here's your check back. There was no deposit that you had to make. There was no small print. I just want to be honest. How could you have this type of upside-down honesty? Not that it's not honest, but that it's different from what we hear and we're used to in the world. You know, we're so used to people trying to get out of stuff and to find the loopholes. What would, what would it look like in your life to have pure words? Just pure honesty. The second thing that this text drives us towards, and we got to spend some time on this one, is a pure understanding of marriage. Well, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, first of all, he doesn't quote all of Moses' law. He just gives a snippet because they knew the rest. They could have filled in the blanks. And if we come to this text looking for reasons to justify divorce, we miss the whole point of this text altogether. Jesus' purpose here was not to establish detailed rules about divorce, but to instead reassert an ideal. Marriage matters. Jesus disrupts conventional wisdom. At the time, there were two schools of thought. One said you can't get a divorce for anything other than maybe something like incest or or the worst of sexual sins. There were a few in that camp. But the more prominent camp, led by many of the religious teachers, said that you could get a divorce for almost any reason. In fact, I found this quote from a guy named uh, Aulus Gellius. He wrote this. Ladies, listen up to this. You're not going to like it. If you should catch your wife in adultery, you may put her to death without a trial. But if you should commit adultery, men, or indecency, she must not presume to lay a finger on you, nor does the law allow it. <laughs> yeah, woe is right. Not good at all. It was serious stuff. Women were being discarded, dropped, added, dropped again, left on their own, without protection. It was a mess. It was bad for families, bad for women, bad for the entire uh, community. Later in Matthew 19, Jesus is asked one of those trap questions about divorce, and he gets into a little bit more detail this time. He says, Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not this way from the beginning. He goes on to say, man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one, one flesh, intimacy, 
See, Jesus does a couple things here. First of all, he acknowledges that God understood because of man's fallen condition, because we are sinful creatures, because our hearts have been hardened, that sometimes, although never good, sometimes divorce would be necessary or would have to happen. But he says it, it, this isn't God's ideal. It's not his intention. It's not the best thing. And he goes all the way back to Genesis. And anytime anybody asks you, what are your views about marriage or this or that about human sexuality or whatever it might be, you should take them back to Genesis. That's what Jesus did. If you want to know what Jesus thought, take them back to Genesis, where the Bible says, here's God's ideal for marriage. One man leaves his mom and dad. A woman leaves her mom and dad. And the two become one. See, there's two pillars of biblical marriage. Commitment, so that's the leaving part, where you leave mom and dad. You leave what your other priorities may be in life with a family connection. You commit to your wife, to your husband, above any other person on this earth. You commit. But the other pillar is oneness. That would be the cleaving. We've got the leaving and the cleaving. Commitment and oneness. Jesus, in the text, compares divorce to adultery, not because they are the same. They are not. But both lead to the reality of broken marriages. One breaks commitment. That's what divorce does. And one breaks oneness. That's what adultery does. And remarriage ends any chance at reconciliation. It drives a nail in the coffin of hopes for the original marriage to be restored. Not that it is always wrong. I'm not saying that. Jesus is just painting, here's the reality. So it's likened to these. To many in our culture, divorce has become no big deal. Thus, marriage is not a big deal. Thus, family stability is not a big deal. Thus, children and men and women and communities suffer. And Jesus comes here saying, it is crucial. Quit treating it as you do. Quit minimalizing it. Quit worming your way out of any marriage you don't want to be in. Don't go into it like that to begin with. So even though it's not the intention of Jesus to answer the question, it's not his main goal here, is to get into a long thing about here's when it's okay and here's when it's not. I feel like I need to for you because I know you're asking that question. When is it okay to consider divorce? The Bible gives two reasons. Number one, marital unfaithfulness. A sexual relationship outside of that with the spouse. Is there some gray area about what that sexual relationship might look like? Yeah, there may be. In all things, couples should get the input of godly Christian leaders into their difficult situations. But the Bible clearly, clearly makes room for divorce in these very bad situations in which the oneness has been broken and the trauma incurred upon the person whose spouse 
has committed this crime against them. The second reason the Bible gives, 1 Corinthians 7, is abandonment. And again, we need to be careful with this passage in 1 Corinthians 7 and any passage and just make sure we don't read more into it than is there. Paul is addressing a specific situation at a specific time, and he clarified that abandonment by an unbeliever was grounds for divorce. So then we ask, okay, only an unbeliever? Well, what if one believer abandons another believer? Paul would have been thinking, well, how can that happen? How could one believer abandon the other? If they were truly committed to God, why would they reject the most sacred of human promises? The most sacred of human commitments. So that's not even on his radar right there. But we've known brothers and sisters in Christ who experienced abandonment. And the Bible says that could be cause for divorce. And what, what does abandonment always mean? How can you define it? Are there some gray areas there again? Yeah, I think so. And we get in trouble when we try to pretend there's zero gray areas to any of this. Does it only mean when someone packs up their bags and moves to another city or another house? Or can there be such a thing as emotional abandonment or physical abandonment? I don't know that anything qualifies for abandonment more than abuse. I mean, how could you abandon someone more than that to where you actually abandon even caring for their well-being at all? We believe that would fall under that, that category. In summary, the Bible permits divorce when there is sexual unfaithfulness or abandonment. But in those cases, the Bible permits that and either of these breaks the pillars of commitment and oneness. If one of these things happens, must you get a divorce? No. God can do miracles, and we've seen him do incredible, incredible miracles. Neither Moses nor Jesus wanted divorce. That's clear. They knew it was not good, but they also knew that sometimes it would happen. Sometimes it would be the lesser of two evils. When someone has been unfaithful and broken the marriage— the other person is left in a bad spot. Is it sin for them to remarry? No, because that first marriage has been voided. There's lots of reasons why remarriage can be difficult. And if you've experienced that, you know. And there's lots of reasons why staying single can be difficult. If you are experiencing that, you know. Both can be extremely difficult with parenting, whereas single you feel like you may be in it alone, and in a remarriage you recognize that you're bringing some baggage from past marriage into your new family structure. It doesn't mean your new family can't be really, really great, but the reality is there will be some extra work required. Both options offer challenges, but there is healing, and there is hope. And there is help. It's why God doesn't like divorce, because he sees the destruction that it causes, the turmoil it leaves people and children in. And it's why the church is called to care for people, people who are single or widowed or divorced or remarried 
newly married, all of the above and more. All people. Let me say another word here while we're on the subject. Divorce decisions ought to be led by the church. We've turned way too much over to the state, including the marriage part. Yeah, I know there's the legal stuff we got to take care of. I understand that. But the church should be heavily involved in marriage decisions. The church should be involved as couples go and seek counsel of, I'm thinking about marriage, what do you think? Or we're thinking about marriage, what do you think? And we decided to get married, will you help us prepare? Or something is going wrong in our marriage, will you help? And long before divorce is ever mentioned, couples ought to be seeking the input and help of the church. I tell you, if a couple comes to the Highland Park leaders and says, can you talk to us about divorce? Our first response is, not yet. Maybe we'll have to at some point. But at first, it is our God-given duty to talk to you about reconciliation about your marriage, about your family, about your kids. We have to at least talk about that. And then maybe, tragically, we'll have to talk about the other. But please, let us talk about what God's ideal is first. We have a wedding policy here at Highland Park, and if you want to get married um, by one of us, then that means you're asking God's blessing and you're submitting to God. And so the first thing we'll do is talk to you about God's ideal for how you live now and how you live in marriage. And if you want to sign off on that and agree to go through premarital counseling sessions and say, yes, I want to build um, my marriage on spiritual truths and foundations, then we will gladly walk through you with that. For couples who aren't interested in that, we advise them to maybe just get a, a legal marriage and maybe to find another place because we're in the church business here, not the legal business. We, we want to take what God set aside as holy and sacred and of the utmost importance and ask His blessing and let it be under His umbrella of wisdom and guidance. If you're a couple here today and you need help, please ask. Get help. Maybe it's from us. Maybe it's from professional Christian counselors who would be ready to walk with you for a long season. Maybe you need to ask your small group to be praying for you. But get help. Okay. Now that we've covered that, is everybody having fun yet? <laughs> I know this is a tough topic. But we're going we're gonna to keep pressing through it together. The last thing I want to talk about today is that God calls us to have a pure heart. Again, the, the Pharisees had restricted, restricted the law too far, but Jesus' teaching is not new when he comes and says, it's not just about physical adultery, it's about the lust in your heart. I mean, read Proverbs and you'll see the dangers of lust. Job talks specifically about lust. And think about the Ten Commandments. Yes, there's the commandment, do not commit adultery, but what's commandment number 10? Don't covet your neighbor's wife. That's lust. Remember the story of David and Bathsheba? 
he probably should not have been at the palace in the first place. He, he should have been with his army. But that's a whole other story. It wasn't a sin for him to be on the rooftop. It wasn't a sin for him to notice that a beautiful woman was bathing within eyesight. That wasn't the sin. The sin was letting his eyes linger and letting the thought linger and turn over and replay in his mind over and over again. By the way, when you see an image like that, your brain is wired to remember. So guard your, guard your eyes as best you can. The truth is we can't help seeing some dangerous images in our over-sexualized culture. I hate that. But that's a sad reality. We need to avoid them whenever we can, however we can. But sometimes we're going to see something, even if it's on a billboard passing by. And last week, we talked about when, when you feel anger towards someone or something, that we need to, as quickly as we can, pivot towards love. James 4 says that human anger does not produce godly righteousness. So we pivot away from the anger towards love so we can be productive and good. And the same is true when we face the temptation of lust. We see something inappropriate. We hear something inappropriate. Pivot away towards purity and a pure heart. People in adultery often say things like, I don't know how this happened. I don't know how I got here. The truth is they just weren't paying attention. Because if they tell the story, you'll know how they got there. They let thoughts enter their mind. They thought flirting was no big deal. They thought chatting with someone was no big deal. They knew they were crossing little boundaries. And they didn't care. And they got right to the edge. Right to the edge of danger. And eventually they fell off. I have a friend who told me a story. Gave me permission to share it. One time he was flying on an airplane back to Tulsa from a business trip. And he was just happened to be sitting, his ticket had him sitting next to a young, attractive lady who was drunk and flirting on the entire flight with him, even asking him to go back to her place in Tulsa. He said... He was uncomfortable the whole time. He didn't know how to get out of it. He was trying to talk about his family, and she just would not quit. And when the flight landed and he got off the plane, he said, I literally ran through the airport and out of the airport and got out of there. He said, I felt kind of silly and goofy running like that, but I didn't know what to do. And I told him, I said, man, that was the smartest thing you ever could have done. Because the mistake that people make is thinking that they are, are infallible and indestructible and they can get away with anything. And we read the story of Joseph in the Old Testament and when Potiphar's wife comes on to him and wants to have an affair with him. The text says he just flees, he runs, he gets out of there. And I was like, dude, you did the same thing. And I, I, what I love about Joseph is he was an incredible person. I don't know that he trusted himself right there. He wasn't going to flirt with it. He wasn't going to walk a dangerous line. He got out of Dodge. And that's what we need to do with impurity. Did God create beauty? Yeah. Did God create sexuality? Yeah. Can we corrupt God's good creation? 
Yeah. So why should we not lust? Because we're ruining God's goodness, what he gave to us. We, we, we don't want to objectify another human's body. It's why we have to be thoughtful and modest and cautious and disciplined. God wants us to see others as created in his image, to see them as a soul, not just a physical body. God wants us to see them as parents hope others see their kids, as brothers hope others see their sister. And when this gets violated, our culture rots into a hellish cesspool. One in three children live without their biological dad in the home. A lot of that tracks back to impure hearts at some point. 1.2 million children are victims of sex trafficking, and we can't even imagine the terrors of their existence. A few weeks ago, we saw politicians applauding the right to abort a child seconds before birth, and one politician saying, maybe it's even okay right after birth. Somehow that tracks back to impure thoughts that led to stuff. Or another politician saying that joking about sexual abuse is just locker room banter. But stats say that one in four girls and one in six boys will be sexually abused before they turn 18 years old. It's not a joke. You want to line our kids up here today? Count them off. One, two, three, four. Sexual abuse stays with the person for a lifetime. Oh, yes, there's healing. Oh, yes, there can be wonderful marriages. There can be wonderful families, wonderful hope, and wonderful joy. But if you've been a victim of that, you know the trauma and the challenge. It is tough, it is not a joke. This pure heart thing matters. And where does all of this wickedness start? It starts in the human heart. A whisper from the enemy, it's no big deal. Oh, it's a big deal. James says that temptation leads to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, leads to death. You know, one complaint against Christianity is that it's too restrictive God should stay out of people's bedrooms and lives and preferences. But then came the Me Too movement. It, like any movement, has baggage and isn't always carried with discernment. But I, for one, am glad it came. I, I wish the church would have started it and shaped it. You know, Jesus was saying them too 2,000 years ago. Yet just a few years ago, Harvey Weinstein could mistreat and abuse women however he wanted. I'm glad he can no longer get away with it, at least not without consequences. A biblical way to consider Me Too is that term we keep coming back to in this series. Imago Dei, image of God. That all people are made in the image of God. Women are also made in the image of God and should be treated as children of God. Culturally, I'm glad we're asking a question that we had quit asking. I mean, a few years ago, the culture was not asking, is there a sexual ethic? 
I mean, for decades, culture has been saying, leave us alone. There is no sexual ethic. We can all do what we want. We're all independent. And suddenly, even our larger secular culture is saying, wait a second. Maybe there are some rules. Maybe there are some guidelines. Maybe there is a sexual ethic that we need to follow. And as Christians, we're saying, hmm. So you're saying there should be some sexual ethic, some set of boundaries, some morality? I'm with you, but my next question to you is, who gets to decide what those boundaries are? And our culture has no clue. Oh, I mean, they'll throw around some ideas. But as soon as two people disagree, what do you do with that? And at this point, again, Christians are at the back of the room and we ought to be raising our hands saying, we have an idea. Maybe we should let God decide. Maybe his rules are actually for us, not against us. Maybe they produce human flourishing. Maybe they aren't restrictive. Maybe they give us the greatest freedom we could have ever known within his boundaries and his wisdom and his love. Maybe Genesis wasn't such a far-fetched idea at the creation. We come to see God's commands are good. They are as good now as they've always been. And he made the good things and he created the good boundaries. And any, anything outside of those boundaries, he says, is destructive. And we see it over and over and over again. Remember that beatitude we saw in the Matthew 5, the beginning of the chapter? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Don't you want to see God? Do not have anything clouding your view of Him. And not only do the pure in heart get to see God, but they get to see people who are made in the image of God, how God sees them. Nothing causes more harm to the soul than sexual sin, sexual abuse. Nothing has more destroyed more families more marriages, we've paid a very steep price. But if you've come today and you're feeling shame and you're feeling guilt, I want you to know about the steep price Jesus has already paid for you. I want you to know there is forgiveness in Him. I want you to know that God loves you and cares for you. He adores you. And he knows your past mistakes. He knows your current struggles. He knows the future times you're going to fall on your face. And he loves you. And he says, I want to call you mine. I welcome you to me. We're going to give you some time. We want you just to take some moments. We want you to ask, God, would you give me pure words? Would you help me have a pure view of your design of marriage and how good it is and then live accordingly? God, would you give me a pure heart? If there's something I need to cut out, God, I'll cut it out. Jesus never intended for you to gouge out your right eye because he knew your left eye would cause you to stumble too. He's saying something though, isn't he? 
He knows there's stuff that causes us to stumble. What do you need to gouge out of your life? What habit? What situation do you need to change? We just want to spend some moments letting God speak to us. He cares for us. And He can change our hearts from where they are now to pure. Hey, this is Brian Jennings. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And we wanted to let you know about something that's coming up at Highland Park. It's a workshop for parents about how to lead your family in this techie world. Technology has so much promise and good things that it can offer for our children. But, oh man, we know it can be so destructive. In fact, I'm willing to bet it can be way more destructive than you ever imagined. I know lots of parents feel overwhelmed with that. So we're putting together a special workshop uh, that we've been working on for a long time to not only warn parents, but to equip you with practical things that you can take home and begin doing to help keep your kids safe and to help them grow and to help them uh, just learn how to have a good, healthy relationship with technology. The workshop is on March 6th, and you can find more information at our website, hptulsa.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.